0: I should say, uh, several psalms this summer. And we're going to begin with uh, one. It's a very significant psalm and um, also a great place to start. So before we uh, read it and take a look at it, let's let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. It guides us in life. By nature, we are foolish and we don't know what we're doing on this earth. We have no idea how to praise you and live for your glory and what we're supposed to do with our time unless you tell us and so as we take a look at this psalm we ask that you would teach us things that maybe we don't know or we need to be reminded of we ask that you would uh, uh transform us uh, in our very inner person in our minds and our hearts and our desires and we pray that uh, you'd exalt christ so that we would be encouraged by him and his work and refreshed in him for jesus sake we pray amen Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives uh, this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening. Uh, Psalm 1 begins, if you look at the first word in the ESV translation, it begins by talking about uh, this notion of uh, blessedness, this notion of happiness or Uh, joy. We might use those uh, synonyms uh, talking about human joy. And he begins by telling us really how human joy and uh, human blessedness or human happiness can be found or how it can be discovered, how it can be uh, lived in. Uh, This is such a huge theme uh, in the world all around us. It shouldn't come as a surprise that God's addressing it here in his uh, word. In fact, even as citizens of the United States of America, in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, we talk about uh, happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. What are these rights? That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So as human beings, this is what we pursue. If you cut people all the way down to their core, whether or not they could explain it, uh, what they are pursuing is this, blessedness, joy, happiness, something which makes their day something which brightens up their day, gives them hope and a reason to live for. Now, the charge is often laid against Christianity that as soon as you become a believer, joy stops. Christians, uh, that religion is the biggest joy-killing religion. Or God loves it when we are dour, sour, miserable, frowning all the time. And uh, the, the charge is often laid that, look, those Christians think that if somebody's smiling, they must be sinning. And if they're in joy and in happiness and living a life that is content and at peace, it must be because they're hiding something. But right from the start of the Psalms, and even at the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the language of blessedness and happiness is spoken of in very strong language. It's put there right from the start. And Jesus speaks of this happiness in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, or let me translate it differently, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy is the man Who does not walk and stand and sit in these ways. But happy is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord and makes it his delight. Now, I realize that as believers, a lot of us may have a knee jerk reaction against this notion of happiness. I'm not talking about a happiness that the world has, which is a fleeting emotion that comes one second and literally two minutes later can be entirely gone but a happiness that is associated with a deep-seated joy, part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. A happiness that is not a smile deep, but soul deep, that goes all the way down to the heart of hearts, so that regardless of our external circumstances, we can consider ourselves blessed, happy, joyful, no matter whether we're going through persecution or whether we just got the promotion we were looking for. Regardless of the circumstances, we can find ourselves happy. And so I would translate Psalm 1 verse 1, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That could be very legitimate or excited, blessed, joyful is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So this Christian happiness is deep. It's rooted in Christ. It's grounded in the rock of our salvation who changes not. This happiness is based not on external circumstances, but on our unchanging relationship with God who has delivered us from the wrath to come and now lives within us by the Holy Spirit. As we walk through this psalm, I want us to notice just three things. We could divide this up quite a few ways. It's actually pretty basic, the the structure of it. I want us to notice the method of happiness first, then we see a, a little bit of an image of happiness, and then we see an image of misery to close with. So the method of happiness, the image of happiness, and then the image of misery. So for the method of happiness, we just look at verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, on his law, he meditates day and night. So the method of happiness is twofold. It begins with a negative, what we avoid, and then it ends with a positive, what we do. So first of all, negatively, what we avoid. There are things as believers, which if we want to uh, enjoy this blessedness that the psalmist speaks of, this happiness, this joy. There are things we need to avoid, things that we shouldn't do. And that's part of our life as believers. And uh, he begins by talking about walking not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, you could use this verse one as a process of unhappiness, looking at it like that. How do we end up unhappy? Well, it begins by walking in the counsel of the wicked. And I want to emphasize the word counsel, because usually how unhappiness begins is by how we think. It's by the information that we take in, the counsel that we receive, the messages that we imbibe mentally. That's so often how unhappiness begins, is through our thinking, which is why Paul can say in Ephesians 4, 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their what? Their minds. In the futility of their minds. In their counsel, in the way they think. And this is why the Bible repeatedly addresses the mind of believers, Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of our minds. So how we think, the counsel we put ourselves in and take in, the information that comes into us goes through our minds and how our mind processes that is incredibly important regarding this blessedness and this happiness. Or Colossians 3, 2, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. Again, it's an address to the mind. So when happiness begins with the mind, then it translates down to our way of life. Notice, nor stands in the way of sinners, which has to do with lifestyle this way. So uh, it starts in our mind Then it starts to affect our lifestyle. And eventually it ends up where we're sitting in the seat of scoffers, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now that's the pit of unhappiness. The way we think is not good. It's affected and changed our lifestyle. And now where someone sits is basically the people that they identify with. And now it's no longer something external. I'm part of the scoffers. I sit in the seat. I identify. This is the group that I belong to. There's a gradual progression. Notice starts with walking, then standing, then sitting. It starts with thinking, with living, and then with identifying with this wickedness. This is the process of unhappiness that the psalm is counseling us to avoid if we desire this life of joy and this life of blessedness that Christ has purchased for us. Now, let me just walk through this. Uh, If you look at any sin, it almost always begins in the world of ideas. Oh, the world is right. This isn't so bad. You know, just have a pick up some easy ones. Just have a drink to shoot up. Uh, Just enjoy something that God says no to. Surely God isn't against having pleasure in life. That's It starts in our minds. Then we dabble in it. And eventually becomes so much part of it that we can't live without it. We're sitting down in this. We're in the seat of the scoffers. We've joined forces with those whose lifestyle is this. And I want to kind of bring this right home to Pella here because we live not in Chicago. We don't live in Beijing. We don't live in Ethiopia. We live here in Pella, Iowa. And I think there are unique challenges or temptations for us as pelicans or uh, people who are from this surrounding region um, and what we have to face as far as, yeah, what are the, the, the ways the world drives us into unhappiness, the ways we are tempted to drive ourselves into unhappiness by imbibing in what the world does. Let me just begin by uh, pointing out uh, family and children as, as one way that this can happen. I don't know if you know this, but we will destroy our joy by trying to find our happiness in our spouse or our children. Look, let me begin with this. There are hosts of organizations that will say the key to happiness is the perfect family. You will find those organizations in the world. The key to human happiness is by having the perfect spouse or the perfect children. And eventually if we imbibe enough of this falsity, this lie, that that's the key to happiness and joy in this life, we'll start ordering our lives according to it. And eventually that will become our entire identity. So our thinking will start, I must have the perfect marriage and children, Then we'll start living this way. Family is all I live for. I don't make time or take time for anyone or anything else. And then eventually our identity becomes, I must have a perfect family in order to be happy. And if I don't get it, I cannot be happy. That's to go from walking to standing to sitting in the seat of these scorners, a group of people in the world that says, you don't need God. What you need is the perfect family. A second way this can take place, I think we're tempted strongly, Impella, is regarding career or vocation. Where Impella, in, in certain areas, to be a workaholic is actually considered to be quite sinful and people look down on you. Impella's actually praised, I'm talking about not hard work, but workaholism, finding your identity in what you do and becoming extremely, extremely successful at it. And this can affect our thinking. Now, some people worship careers for money uh, because they like what they can buy if they are successful. Some people worship their careers uh, because uh, they're looking for significance. They're starving to be noticed or praised or even to prove to a high school classmate that they are somebody uh, who, when maybe they were told all through high school they would never amount to be anybody. So if we uh, fall into the world's temptation here, what can end up happening is we start thinking a successful career will make me happy. It will make me somebody. And then we start living that way. Work is all I have time for. I will not take time for anyone or anything else. And I will not let anything get in the way of my perfectly successful career. Because if I can finally get that perfect career, I will be happy. I will be somebody, an identity. My career must succeed in order for me to beat anybody at all. In order for me to be happy, and we've taken our seat among the scoffers who say, "You don't need God. God has nothing to do with human happiness and joy. What you need is work. You need career, and then finally, image." Let me just walk through that one. Impella, you know, we're a touristy town, which comes with a lot of benefits, right? <laughs> at least when tulip time hits, the streets are almost always not under construction anymore. (laughs) But you come here about two months beforehand and everything's under construction. Uh, The lawns are mowed. The tulips look fairly good. Usually you hit it early, mid or late, whenever it is. And uh, the town looks pretty good. And the Dutch fronts are awesome. We get all these great brick buildings. People love to come and look at this. It's a unique place to live in the sense that it has a functioning downtown, which is not common for a lot of small towns. But in the midst of that, in our emphasis on image as a touristy town, comes some tremendous temptations, beloved, that don't have to do with buildings, but have to do with life and what we present to not just the tourists, but what we start presenting even to each other. We can talk about image regarding body types, having to fitness ourselves to death. We can talk about image regarding how we dress, having to keep up with all of the latest and the greatest. What it comes down to is presenting this image. And the world will tempt us, Pella will tempt us to start thinking along these lines. The perfect body or the perfect image will make me happy. Then it affects living. I don't have time for anything or anyone else other than fitness and making myself look good. And then finally, my identity, my self-worth is bound up in the whole world of fitness and then how fit and I am and how good I look. And then one more politics, which I think maybe affects us as American Christians, not just Impella. Thinking good candidates in office are my greatest need. They'll make me happy. Living, I don't make time for much else other than politics, identity. I can't be happy unless the political world goes my way. And I will actually mock Christians who don't agree with me on politics and we find our identity bound up in political parties. Now, one thing that characterizes us when we walk down this, this road that the world wants us to walk down, which comes to us by nature, is we'll find a lot of unhappiness, a lot of misery, the opposite of blessedness and joy. We'll find sadness, despair. We'll find a lot of horrible things stirring in our hearts that we don't want to ever speak about. And when we find ourselves there, it could very well be because we've started imbibing what the world's trying to get us to imbibe and not avoiding those things. So let me just ask you this question. I've asked myself this as well. I'm asking myself now, what does our life and how we spend our time and energy tell us about where we belong? What are we thinking about? What do we refuse to think about? How are we living What are we avoiding in our living? And if you cut us all the way down to the core, where do you think you really belong in this world? What characterizes you? If you were to, if a stranger were to come up to you and say, please describe yourself, what categories can I put you in? What would you tell them? Because what we would tell them reveals oftentimes where we're finding our identity, where we're going and where we are going down this horrible road of letting the world establish what we do or we're participating in it actively rather than serving the Lord with our minds, our lives, and our time. Now, so that's the negative to avoid, okay? The positive to put on regarding this method of happiness is found in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So this joyful, blessed individual, this happy individual uh, is delighting in the law of the Lord. The word is just delight or pleasure. He enjoys, this individual, he or she enjoys uh, the law of, of the Lord. Now, what is the law of the Lord? Sometimes uh, in sometimes the Old Testament is divided up into what we might call smaller sections. For example, Luke 24, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So then we've got him referring to the Old Testament in basically three ways. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. But other times, like Matthew 22:40, 40, it's just two divisions. On these two commandments depend all the Law and the Prophets. Now, at the time of Psalm 1, a large chunk of the Old Testament obviously had not yet been written. So when the psalmist talks about the Law of the Lord, he's not talking, not simply referring narrowly to, oh, the Ten Commandments but referring, I would argue, to the entire Old Testament that had to be written, all that God has revealed about himself at this point. Albert Barnes said this, Here the word law undoubtedly refers to the written revelation of the will of God as far as it was then made known. So the law of God that the psalmist is referring to is just the Bible. So we would say the law of God that we're meditating on would be a reference to all of Scripture. Now we've got 66 books Genesis through Revelation. And the man who's blessed, the individual who's the believer who's blessed and happy and joyful, meditates on these things day and night, which is another way of saying this is just part of their life. It's not like legalistic, oh, have I thought about a truth in God's word this morning and this evening? No, it's just part of their living. They they steep their hearts and their souls in the truths found in God's word. So happiness comes from loving and meditating on the truths found in the Bible. Now, let me just walk us through what that can look like. And I I don't want to impose on any of us some sort of system. So here's just one example among thousands. But one way to do this is if we want true happiness and joy, uh, uh, we we can meditate on how sinful we are. Because the Bible exposes what to us as human beings? Just how wretched we are. I mean, when you go through the Old Testament, what do we discover? Selfishness, drunkenness, rape, murder, over and over and over again. When you read the Old Testament, by the time you get to Malachi, what do you know about human beings? That we have a serious problem on our hands, and it's us and our sin. <laughs> that is what we know. We are a mess as a human race. Better to be an animal than it would to be a human, right? We, we have a lot of sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, that plunged us into a whole world of misery. So meditating on these truths of the world will say, hey, don't think about that. That's too discouraging. That's, that's too harsh. You'll never find happiness in this. But meditating on God's word forces us to come to grips with what? How sinful I am. Now, careful here. We don't stop there. But we do start there or that is included in our meditation, and there will be no true happiness, no true happiness, unless we come to grips with just how sinful the Bible says we are by nature. Even this, even how sinful we still are as born-again Christians. Because if we don't do that and come to grips with that, when we go out, we won't have true happiness. You know what we'll have? We'll feel fake, like we're putting up a facade, and like we've got to pretend we're not really as bad as we are. That's not happy. That's not joy. That's faking it again. And our hearts will figure it out. Our souls will know. We'll know that indeed we are not truly happy. Then the Bible also speaks a lot about what? How God has overcome our sin by his power in order to save us. Now he does this in the Old Testament through incredible miracles. Israelites crossing over the Red Sea on dry ground. How does this happen? Coming out with the plagues. (laughs) Going into the promised land and this walls of Jericho just falling down the Israelites basically doing nothing except obeying God to just walk blow a trumpet or two and then yell and you see God destroying Sennacherib's army and doing these incredible works you see God healing someone like Naaman from a foreign country and then you see Jesus Christ coming into this world and doing what living perfectly All throughout the Old Testament, there's nobody that can keep this law. Nobody's even close. You come to the New Testament, still nobody's doing it. And then you get to this Jesus guy and the camera just hones right in on him. And what's he doing? He's not sinning. He's obeying all the commandments. He's loving enemies. And then he goes and he suffers and he dies for the sake of sinners. Beloved, that's incredible. In the midst of this, our hearts as believers just sing. That's what it is to meditate on the truth of God's word and ingest this. So in the midst of the world telling us we're not everything that we should be, and they're right. When the world tells us we're not everything we should be as Christians, they're not wrong, they're right. When our own consciences accuse us. If we're going to meditate deeply on the truth, we're going to accept that as true. You're right. I am way, I am extremely sinful, way worse than the world knows, and way worse than even my mind knows. But we're not afraid of that. Why? Because we have an incredible Savior. Now, that's what it is to meditate on these things over and over and over again. To meditate on this truth, then the Holy Spirit comes to live in me. After the Lord saves me, He lives in me. He's given me a brand new heart. He's empowering me to a whole different life. Beloved, that's incredible. I belong to a different family now. I'm loved. I'm redeemed. I'm a child of God. This is incredible. That's where joy is to be found. This is where true happiness is found. That's why Augustine would say, our hearts are made for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. That's true for an unbeliever. It's also true for a Christian. Our hearts are restless until we are actively resting them in the Lord by meditating on the truths that are found in his word. Doesn't even necessarily have to be a particular verse, right? Just the truths. You know what, I really blew it. The Lord tells me I I will blow it. Right now, I'm really having a struggle with where I belong in this world. Uh, That's part of what it is to be a human being. We're not home. God tells me that he forgives my sins in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And he tells me that I belong in heaven now. And that's my true home where I belong. Okay, well, that's encouraging. That's true joy. That's true happiness to meditate on those realities all throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Let me ask each of us this. Let me, let me mention this, I guess. Don't underestimate the power of those little device screens that we carry around in our pockets and we use hours during the day or the computer screen that we look at to change what we are meditating on. Don't underestimate the power of screens to fill us with messages that we are just perceiving as, oh, it's just news. It's just helpful information. It's just good stuff for us. It used to come through newspapers, right? And through a television set that was like as deep as it was tall. <laughs> now now that technology is changing, but it's still the same message. Don't underestimate the power of what we imbibe, regardless of how we imbibe it, to change what we meditate on or to hinder what we should be meditating on. I don't know if you've sorted through your life. I've sorted through mine and it is embarrassing. It is it is horrible to see how many minutes, how many hours out of the day I would actually have available to be more thinking about the truths of God's word and be encouraged and filled with joy rather than discouraged and living in despair. So don't underestimate the power of the world's messages. You're the only one that can shut that off for you. You're the only one that can decide, hey, here's how I'm going to spend my time. Again, we don't live shutting the world out as if we're in some Amish community. That's not what Christians do. We're not called to that. So learning about the world, finding out the news, listening to these things, receiving some entertainment from it, all good and well. But don't underestimate the power of these things to prevent us from meditating on what will actually bring us true joy and true happiness. So then I want us to notice uh, the image of happiness. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So what's depicted here is a tree planted, established purposefully. Someone planted this tree. And some people have spent a little bit of time talking about how every believer is just that God has planted us in this spot where we are secure. It wasn't a happenstance, but we have been planted by this stream when we come to faith. And we're planted by streams of water. So there's an ever-present supply of nourishment that comes up through our roots and causes our leaf no longer to wither and us to yield fruit in season. So it's just this really flourishing tree. That's the image of a, of a happy believer. This is the life of one who's been rescued Uh, from hell and brought to heaven all through Jesus Christ, and who continually reminds himself or herself of these incredible truths and feeds on that stream. So I don't want to spend too much time on this image because I want to move to something else. But let me ask this. What are we tapped into? What is our soul tapped into? God's planted us by this stream. You can call this stream the Word of God. And that feeds us internally and it gives us fruit, and it gives us leaves which are flourishing. It gives us a life of joy and happiness. But beloved, if we're not tapping into this, if we're not meditating on these things, we're going to be like a tree planted right along these streams, but our taps run in somewhere else, to a well of poison, to a well of worldliness. And as we suck that up, we're going to find withering leaves, and we're going to find fruit that is not born, in various seasons. So again, what are we tapped into? Our heart will never lack nourishment if we feed it on Jesus Christ. But if we tap into the world and what the world has to offer, we will discover that we will be a very born-again people and also a very joyless people, a people extremely unhappy because we've bought into what the world says we should feed on. So let me just urge us in this way. What do you figure it out? Let each of us just sit down and this is something we can meditate on. What is my reason for living? What is my identity bound up in? Not theologically but practically really in daily life. What do I live for? What do I spend my time doing? And again, oftentimes it's really good things. We've just tapped into them saying, "Make me happy rather than tapping into the Lord so we can serve Him. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. I want to mention this here before we conclude with a look at the wicked. He's the key to understanding every story, every chapter, every psalm, and Psalm 1 is no exception. If you look at your ESV, there's probably a footnote in verse 1 that says the singular Hebrew word for man, ish, in Hebrew, is used here to portray a representative example of a godly person. I want to convince you that this privileged, happy life, this life of blessedness, which is being held out to you as a believer, is only offered to us because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Jesus walked perfectly with pure thoughts of doing his Father's will to accomplish our salvation. He actually did this. He is this perfect man. He did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he walked with his own thoughts of glorifying his Father. And on the cross, he was treated with scorn and contempt Now, how does that work? Jesus never once lived any sort of lifestyle of sin, never once sinned, but on the cross, he stood accountable for the lifestyle of sinners and he was treated as though he was a sinner who deserved judgment and he underwent our judgment. How does that work? Jesus came into this world as the Son of God who took his seat not with the scoffers but with the Godhead, declaring the truth. He declared he belonged to the Godhead, that he is God in the flesh. He is the I am, and his Father is God the Father in heaven. But on the cross, Jesus was treated as though he belonged with the common criminals, with the God-haters. He was crucified between two criminals. He was identified as someone to be scored. How does that work? Jesus came to do God's will and to delight in it. The law of God was his meditation. And yet, we're told that in Hebrews 10, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And what was God's will for Jesus? What did Jesus delight in? Isaiah fifty three ten. it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Did you notice in Psalm 1 that the righteous man, is all in all he does, he flourishes? This incredible tree. But you look at Jesus Christ, and when he's hanging on this dead stick in the ground, this tree that's no longer living, when he's hanging there, would you describe his life as happy and blessed? you describe his life how? You are under a curse. God is against you. You are not flourishing. You are undergoing everything that every human being in the entire world wants to avoid. Get me out of his shoes. Why? Because he's in our shoes. Because he's undergoing what you and I should have to undergo for all of our lawlessness, for all of our wickedness, and we've got lots of it. And Jesus came down here for wretches like you and me to live perfectly, only to have to switch seats with us when the blessings and the curses are doled out. So we get the blessing of what? This life of happiness and joy and blessedness of being a child of God, though we don't deserve it. Of bringing all of our sin to the table and being accepted free of charge into heaven because of what Jesus did for us. We get all this blessedness, He gets all the cursedness. So I want us to be convinced, beloved, as we look at this psalm, that if Jesus Christ didn't undergo this apparent travesty of justice where He perfectly obeys yet is treated as though He is a God hating sinner, you and I have no prospect of eternal life, no hope of happiness. And our lives will be characterized by only one thing, misery now and worse misery forever in hell. So we needed Jesus to undergo this horrible event, this horrible life, in order for us to have any hope of happiness. And he did it. He purchased this for He wanted to do it so that we could be filled with joy here and now in the Holy Spirit and let me finish with this we have an image of misery verses 4-6 the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish so the wicked do not avoid this walking and standing and sitting in the seat of scoffers they don't they're not like that they are not like this well-planted tree which draws upon the truths of redemption and salvation in God's word. They're not like that. They're actually the total opposite. They're like chaff, which is the lightest part of the grain. If you want to separate it, you throw the grain in the air in a stiff wind or in front of a fan and the chaff just blows away and the grain falls to the ground. And the Lord compares people who are wicked to the chaff. That will will be them in the judgment. They will not stand in the judgment. They don't have enough weight, as it were they will blow away into eternal condemnation unless we think this is just some old covenant god of wrath speaking. Jesus speaks of this in John 3:16 speaking of believing in him and having eternal life and of not believing him and being condemned. Revelation 6 speaks of the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand. And the people asking that question are the people who have what rejected Jesus. Kings even down to slaves Everyone we're told in Revelation 6 is asking who can stand? Psalm 1 says they can't stand in the judgment. Revelation 6, they're asking who can stand? Let me let me paraphrase that: who can make it through this? Who of us can make it through the judgment and come out on the other side? And the answer is nobody who's not in Jesus Christ. Nobody. Everyone outside of Jesus cannot make it through this and come out the other side. They will enter into this, and there is no exit sign. There's nothing but an entrance, an eternal entrance into this horrible judgment for sin. But for believers, the Lord knows the righteous. He knows us. Remember Jesus' words I'm going to come back and say, I never knew you. Flip that around, Matthew 7. When he comes back to us, he's going to say, I know you. He knows our way, he knows our hearts. He knows we're sinful, but he knows this new heart. He knows who we are down to the core of our being, so we can rest assured and joyful that when Christ comes again, our relationship with him will be revealed, and he will indeed know us. So let me ask you this. I'm asking myself this. Are you happy? Are we filled with joy? Are we we those who are joyful no matter how life is going? Or have we... Are we tapped into the rivers of water that are found in God's word? Not worshiping the word, of course, but using the word to come to know the truth concerning God's grace to us in Christ and who he's made us to be. Let's pray.